Welcome to Japan on Fire 6, and my name is Kenneth Burroughson, your host, and as Stu, the master of the Podcast on Fire network, has limited time nowadays, I received a blessing to initiate the next part of the Japan on Fire series, because we were in the middle of our Studio Ghibli season, but we'll resume that sometime in the future, there's still lots of fun going on there, but the, I'm very much new and a novice when it comes to Japanese cinema, I I can say I've seen a fair few movies, of course, and I have found some favorite genres and actors and directors over the years. I might not fully understand either of those favorites of mine, like well-researched critics, scholars, and fans out there. But this series, Japan on Fire, has always been about judging movies and subjects as best we can, and mainly to introduce ourselves to new experiences. And this new entry, Japan on Fire 6, is a mixture of all those aspects because I picked the subject uh, the director because I've liked his prior movies but I've not seen everything and it's the famed director of anime and live action called Mamoru Oshii and the director of this is the director of Ghost in the Shell, Avalon uh, Pat Labor, Angel's Egg and the Red Spectacles and with me in this first episode to make sure I don't make an ass of myself is the cinema's Coffin John who I welcome back to the podcast of Iron Network Hey there, Kenneth. I'm not too sure how I can help you uh, not make an ass yourself. Because it as you happens can... naturally. <laughs> well, as you can, as you could probably tell here, I'm, I have my hands full trying to keep an ass of myself. So. Uh-huh. But uh, good to be back on the show, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Right on. One thing I should maybe check. Do you pronounce his, his name Oshi or Oshi? <laughs> Uh, it's actually pronounced Oshi. Oshi, so, okay. I yeah. should uh, mind the double I at the end, okay. Right, exactly. All right, well, that's uh, making an ass out of myself, number one. Ding! Uh, are, we, are we taking account? <laughs> I'll insert that in post because I did. <laughs> d- depending on whether uh, you come on the other episodes in this series, I don't know how many uh, there will be. Uh, maybe we will be introducing you to various uh, works of his that you haven't seen as well so therefore we'll, we might be introducing you to new movies and series and what have you which fits the purpose of this series quite nicely oh yeah by all means and uh you know this is a great opportunity to look into Ulshi's work because uh as we're probably going to find out uh, a little later uh in this episode and probably future episodes that uh, Ulshi is very much of a polarizing figure in uh both the uh, anime and uh, film worlds. Right, interesting. Um, okay, some contact information first. You are listening to Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network, located at podcastonfire.com. If you want to contact us by email, you can do that at podcastonfire at googlemail.com. We have the message forum where we all reside, which is podcastonfire.com forward slash forum. There you'll find the extensive members-only archive of cut conversations and exclusive content, exclusive movie reviews. But we've also initiated the bonus episode format stolen from other podcasts, uh, including yours, <laughs> yours, John. You, you have an episode, uh, bon- uh, b- bonus episode uh, format. And uh, since I have no original ideas, I steal from the best. But uh, Darn it's, right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, and we'll actually talk a little bit later how we're going to make an ep- a bonus episode based out of this uh, very very first episode in Japan on Fire 6. 
You can also locate us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash POF Network is our page. We also fairly recently started one of those uh, Facebook groups which have no firm URL. So just type in Podcast on Fire Network and you'll see the group as well as the page in the search window. Our Twitter address is twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. And I do my writing on sogoodreviews.com and my video rev- review on sleazykvideo.com. Carrying the HL mix of uh, Category 3, The Best and Worst, and uh, IFD, and Phil Mark Ninjas, Taiwan Black movies, and ho- cool Hong Kong movies, including uh, some Taiwan and Hong Kong horror of the 70s and 80s, which I am very much a fan of. And I'm also reachable on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash so good reviews. We are on iTunes, of course. You can subscribe to us there and rate us or leave, a, leave some feedback if you like. And you can also stream us on Stitcher by going to stitcher.com and downloading that application to your computer. But it's also available to most smartphones out there. So you can stream Podcast on Fire Network and just search uh, that very name, Podcast on Fire Network. And each of the shows on the network can be added individually to your favorites. And since we have Coffee John on here again, I'll let him speak about uh, the cinema, what, what that is about, and where it's located. Yeah, so uh, the cinema, much like Podcast on Fire, is a blog as well as a podcast. Um, our main base is vcinemashow.com. Uh, we are also, I should say, we as in the podcast. Uh, the podcast is also available on iTunes as well as Slapdash Radio. And uh, in-app on uh, Stitcher Radio. And uh, if you want to contact us, uh, we can be uh, located at vcinema at variedcelluloid.net. Uh, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash vcinema. Um, our Twitter handle is vcinema show. That's S-H-O-W. And uh, we're also on Google Plus, and I can't remember our exact URL, but if you happen to be on Google Plus, just uh, search for us. We are there. Um, we have somewhat less of a presence on Google Plus than uh, Facebook and other places. But, uh, you know, if you're into the more mellow experience where you're not getting bombarded by uh, <laughs> updates left and right, then, um, you know, by all means, uh, check us out over there. Right on. And, uh Fairly recently, it's mid-February right now, V-Cinema celebrated their two-year anniversary with a podcast and a contest. And Correct. I mean, my general question, I guess, as a podcaster who, who likes seeing other endeavors that I find uh, you know, great and fun, I'd love to see them thrive and be creative and have a drive. I mean, how, how does it feel two years in? I mean, do, do you still feel that this cinema can go, you know, even more places. Do you have any concepts in mind, or how do you work in that regard, John? Yeah, I would have to say that in reality, the cinema really hasn't. I guess, according to what the audience might feel, um, we haven't really reached our real full potential. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I I posted a. Um, you know, a happy new year blog post on the, uh, on our blog, um, uh, just right after the new year's. And, and I kind of characterized last year as being a year of sort of measured growth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
I think the route that a lot of uh, websites go, especially film websites, is to, you know, try to garner a giant audience in this, you know, community and try to get advertising and try to get support from distributors, you know, to get screeners and advance uh, advanced types of things. And, and you know, we, we of course, at V-Cinema, we also have that. But I, I think the that our growth is much more measured in that, you know, for one thing, I'd rather have the site run without kind of any kind of advertising and i'd rather have um you know for example the my writers uh to write in their own voices you know i, I don't want anyone to have to anyway feel like they they're compromising um you know what they want to say for the sake of any kind of um you know any kind of backroom deal or any kind of uh you know uh bowing down to the audience or anything or you know trying to make them feel as if they uh have to write to any particular level other than the level that they're used to Mm -hmm. so in other words what i'm trying to say is that i I want v cinema to remain a very independent force but because of that um you know that sort of in a way stunts our growth uh, i think and um you know this being our second anniversary um you know, I've been looking at statistics lately, something that I don't really do that often. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of surprised that um, our statistics are really not that uh, all that great, you know. But, um, you know, and I'm not trying to, like, shame anyone on, into visiting our site. <laughs> but, again, I think that supports the notion of us going through this sort of measured growth rather than, you know, than trying to make believe that uh, V Cinema is going to be some uh, big thing, uh, you know, we are into film commentary mm-hmm. and less into, you know, putting out news and advertisements and buy, buy, buy and support the site. You know, we mm-hmm. want you to come to us if you want a informed and well thought out opinion about a particular aspect of. Uh, of uh, Asian film or even culture to a degree, because, you know, that's one way that we're trying to grow right now is to capture more uh, Asian cultural aspects and how they can affect film and media and entertainment, things like that. Um, You know, certainly a lot of sites are geared primarily towards film and V cinema has to this point, but I want to kind of take things a little further. Mm -hmm. I mean, it opens up room for creativity when when you're doing it on your own terms, and it's not your life's work and your livelihood either. I mean, exactly financially, which uh, I mean, I can totally recognize that measured growth. Where in terms of my own writing, it took me so many years to find a focus that I that I think is cool, and and I treat that as a blessing, Rob. Exactly. Uh, but I don't receive the uh, you know the 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 major feedback and the major visitors because of that uh, focus but I who, who who wouldn't want to work with something that gives you creative kicks at the best of time but just something you'd like to work with uh, right. uh, exactly. topics and all that and podcast of is the same it, it's been very measured because I, I think even the 100 episodes we did is full of experimentation You're technically we're learning how to present the show but it's still full of experimentation in terms of focus and I, I even look back at episodes like twenty episodes ago and see, whoa, I, I didn't have these and these and these ideas. I do have those now, which is part of the uh, development. But I might look back to the episodes we're at now on the anchor show, where we're around about one hundred and eleven, twelve 
might look back at those round about 130 and see see a very much a different version of uh, not of the show and the site but of my uh, focus and all of that so so i, I i'd like to see the measured uh, i i like to see the measured growth but i'd like to see growth in me and of course uh, your site as well so uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you, you have ideas and uh, that you can't predict the show either i think it's a good thing yeah 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 very much definitely so and i i think you know what the ideas come from i mean I think a lot of sites take kind of the approach of, um, you know, and it's a very, of course, uh, you know, intelligent approach of, you know, saying like, okay, this is what the audience wants. You know, they want top 10 lists or they want, um, you know, best haircuts in Asian cinema and, you know, these kinds of kind of, you know, they do. they're entertaining. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I read articles like that a lot, you know, and, and those are, they're very entertaining, but uh, so sometimes I kind of feel like I, you know, I, w- I want a site that kind of delivers this more kind of meaty content, something that's, you know, behind the scenes and mm-hmm. what's happening, uh, you know, you know, what's happening uh, beyond what's on the screen, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that we sort of laugh at and say, like, oh, that's weird or that's funny, you know? But, you know, uh, I think my approach is kind of always like, well, it's funny, but where is that coming from? You know, what is that referencing? You know, like, because it's funny for me, is it funny for, let's say, you know, a Chinese viewer or a Japanese viewer, you know, those kinds of things. So, yeah. you know, right now I'm fortunate to have writers who try to take that approach, you know, try to dig into the film a little bit more, you know, all the while still keeping with a, you know, pretty good word count and everything. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of the direction that I'm trying to get V-Cinema to move into is, you know, less away from the lighter material, which is, you know, stuff that other sites can deliver and try to get into more uh, stuff that uh, we can deliver because of our uh, our backgrounds in for example, uh, cinema studies. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, uh, my particular major was in uh, linguistics. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm kind of more interested in language aspects of film, et cetera. So it's, it sounds pretty much like kind of highfalutin probably to a lot of your listeners right now. But uh, uh, maybe you know, this week in Slee's crowd, I don't know. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, launching into the main subject of this serial, uh, series, uh, we going to go through essentially Oshi's biography during this episode, you know, the a brief uh, biography, but it still runs a few paragraphs, obviously. So we, we won't go into the biography for each and every episode relating to where he was in his career at that point. We'll do the entire one uh, during this episode and focus on one of his early movies. And we'll reveal that at the, at the break, which movie that will be. So brief Oshi biography. He is a popular and regarded director of anime popular in some in some circles popular in some not popular in other circles as john will describe it later but aside from anime he has, he has dabbled in live action features and writing uh, with those mentioned movies only being part of his resume ghost in the shell avalon angel's egg the red spectacles and uh, he apparently found inspiration and interest in fashionation in european film as a student in particular the 28-minute French sci-fi short, oh, French pronunciation, uh, La Jeté, or aka The Jetty of the Pier. He, that, that is a movie that consists apparently mainly of still photos and deals in time travel in a post-nuclear 
war environment. That that is a movie which she has said being quite an inspiration. But of course, other you know filmmakers as uh, as well. You know, Federico Fellini, Ingmar Bergman. Uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, Jean-Pierre Melville, Jean-Luc Godard, and Andrei Tarkovsky are you know, ma- major influences for him as well, according to bios out, out there. But how they shaped him, I'm sorry to say, I can't really say. Even, even if I watch those gentlemen's uh, movies, I've, um, m- maybe I'll lose my uh, uh, passport if I say this, but I haven't watched a single movie of Ingmar Bergman's. <laughs> and I, pr- I, I have no interest, really. Probably Funny and Alexander, because pe- people say that's a way different uh, movie uh mm, not as odd yeah. as the other movie I, I they don't appeal to me and um that that's all there is to say about it so and they're knocking at my door right now john <laughs> coming to take you away <laughs> actually um i think that you can see uh, probably if you look at his um if you look at oshi's films like um in hindsight you can definitely see that there's a european influence i'm sure that uh People who have who are fans of um, those European directors that you just mentioned, Fellini, Bergman, etc. You know, they, they see that there's this influence. In fact, the film that we're going to talk about today definitely has, in my opinion, a Tarkovsky influence. Um, right, okay. but I, I can talk about that a little later. After graduation in 1976, Oshi entered Tatsunoka Productions and worked on his first anime. Uh, it doesn't apparently have an English name. It's, it's a, a Pardon me if I mangled his name, Johnny. Ipatso Kantakun. That's pretty good. Ipatso Kantakun. Yes. Okay. I won't attempt, I won't attempt that again. <laughs> <laughs> he worked as a storyboard artist on this anime and episode director. And it ran 53 episodes and centered around baseball. And within it apparently has a connection to a death in the family caused by the sport, according to the mother anyway. Uh, the focus is on the kid who wants to play baseball, I think. But... It has apparently never had an English release, but knowing the very cunning Japanese anime and manga and cinema community, the fans, it surely has turned up fan subtitled on the internet by now. But I could be wrong. Yeah, and, and I was actually checking. I, I didn't necessarily find any um, fan subbed, uh, at least in English, but uh, uh, episodes of this particular show. But. Um, I did notice, however, that the show was uh, popular in Italy yes. and Poland, of all places. In Italy, it's the uh, show is known as Il Ficimo del Baseball. Um, of course, that's sort of, sort of a half English, half Italian uh, <laughs> accent there. And Poland, apparently, it's just called, known as uh, Baseballista. And um, videos of those two uh, versions can be found on YouTube. Um, and also, I wanted to sidebar a little bit uh, on this is um, the idea of having because uh, of having this uh, baseball anime, because I think that maybe people without uh, any kind of interest or background in anime might sort of wonder, well, why baseball? And um, actually, it's the case that uh, baseball became popular in Japan in you know the 30s or so. But uh, where it became really important to Japan was a uh, post-war mm. and um you know it being of course that uh you know Japan had to surrender admit its emperor was not a god etc you know there was this great change in the atmosphere in Japan you know and baseball was one of those things that kind of kept the spirits up mm. and in fact um you know baseball is still extremely popular in Japan now and you know whenever a player um, goes from Japanese baseball to the big leagues here in the United States, 
the most recent example being uh, Yu Darvish, who is uh, actually a half Iranian, half Japanese uh, player who recently went to the uh, Texas Rangers. So whenever that happens, it's a big point of pride for the Japanese mm. people. And so, you know, to reflect this sort of great interest and love of the sport, there have been actually many uh, famous uh, baseball anime and manga. And actually, I hadn't heard of this Ipatsu Kantakun uh, uh, before um, before actually you wrote this uh, this um, this outline for the show. But um, you know, there are several other um, anime and manga that are pretty famous. Uh, probably the most famous as the one called the English title is star of the giants or uh, the Japanese titles Kyojin no Hoshi. And um, that one uh, is probably um, the most well-known in Japan for sure. It's and, a long, um, uh, long runner as well. Uh, yeah, so, it's um, a long runner. Um, it was actually in the, I think it was in weekly Shonen for maybe five or six years or so. Right. So that, um, that's you know that's a lot of volumes probably over 20 volumes wow. uh if you you know if you make them into books and then there's been other ones um such as you know diamond ace um uh we already mentioned Ipatz Kantakun, of course uh, uh mr full swing uh <laughs> play ball cute, yeah, cute, so there's cute, cute english names anyway <laughs> right yeah right I, well of course you know a lot of these are to attract you know younger mm boys who are you know already into baseball but you know a lot of these uh, manga and anime of course a lot of them being kind of old you know from the 70s and 60s already you know they also appeal to the more um the retro crowd you know or the crowd who's looking for that sort of nostalgic uh, feel in their anime and manga so so f- for them too it's kind of it'll bring back the sort of memories of um of their own childhoods etc so so yeah that's um very much this is uh, very much a subgenre you know sports manga and anime in general is a subgenre of uh of sorts mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh oshi moved on as director and storyboard artist and began working on the urusei yatsura tv series so this started out as a manga and debuted as TV series in 1981 and ran for 195 episodes concluding in 1986 so should probably should probably be classified as a long runner as well and in short it's about the character of uh, Arturo Moroboshi and the alien Lum who believes she is Arturo's wife after he accidentally proposes to her and during this run that I mentioned four theatrical features were produced and several original video animation releases as well two of these theatrical features Oshi directed uh, Yurusei Yatsura Only You in 1983 and Yurusei Yatsura 2 Beautiful Dreamer in 1984 and if you go by what's out there in terms of research for instance on Wikipedia uh, Oshi didn't have a good director-producer relationship on Only You and uh, he, he was asked to alter aspects of it against his will, and things. No surprise there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he, he's a stubborn one, and he, he he can admit to being young and stubborn, but maybe that's uh, still kind of his uh, his attitude. I haven't really heard any uh, any uh, friction on uh, or read up on any friction on latter production, but we'll uh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to that, I guess. 
it, things weren't smooth on Beautiful Dream either, as Ushi's insistence on his own vision even got the manga artist for the series, uh, Rumiko Takahashi, to flat out reject the script as it strayed so much from his original story and apparently the fan community weren't too happy either. So, <laughs> But apparently it's still a praised entry in the series and perhaps fans and the likes needed some separation from this time and maybe from the movie and to re-examine it at a later time to for it to truly flourish. I mean, uh, praise is still praise, you know. At that time it so- sounded like everyone hated it and him. But... Um, to, to me, though, it, it wasn't really clear. clear it's not clear whether Oshi left the production of Beautiful Dream or not, uh, or, or the production overall, overall of uh, Yurusei Yatsura, but moving on, he did. Yeah, that's kind of interesting that you're mentioning all this, because as I said, Oshi is a bit of a polarizing figure, you know, even... Even, I think, among his fans, really, you know? So <laughs> I think there's a sort of, like... Um, there's a sort of like uh, I think that his fans even sort of filter out certain certain of his works, you know, like they'll say that okay, this is genius, but they'll say like oh, this is completely garbage, and, and I, I think it's kind of interesting because uh, you know you're mentioning here that he worked on the Urusei Yatsura series, and um, I think that again, people who are not familiar with his work, if you happen to watch one of these episodes of Urusei Yatsura. It's kind of much more of a goofy sort of anime, really, uh, of the episodes I've seen. And, um, you know, if you contrast that with the work that he would later produce, you know, things like, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Ghost in the Shell, I'm sure, in a later episode, you know, mm-hmm. th- things like that, these sort of heavy sci-fi, philosophically themed things, you might think, oh, wow, you know, what's well, the big change here you know i mean uh, how you know but i think that sort of goes into you know this contrast sort of feeds into Olshi as more of an auteur you know mm-hmm. and uh you know uh, that's a of course a french term that sounds very highfalutin you know so this early work is basically kind of him you know just getting putting the, dipping the toes into the water you know as we say you know, and then his later work is definitely more of his vision as to what he wanted to do. You know, he had sort of already gotten a taste of and, you know, gotten a career moving in anime and or and, you know, at that point he was able to take it in the direction that he wanted to go in. So I, I guess you could take that this part of his biography as being basically like that. Mm-hmm. And it's around this time, too, that. Oshi directed what is considered to be, well, it's the first released anyway, uh, original video animation OVA. And this was officially released on video in 1983, and it's called Dallas, which has a story focusing on moon pioneers, rebellion, and the rebellion on the moon, and uh, evolution of mankind. It's a four-part, two-hour-in-total OVA. And I saw it out of curiosity because I, I loved one of the poster images, uh, uh, which is sort of one of the last images in that's in the show. And while the four episodes are easy enough to digest, I didn't feel there was any real depth here to be gained other than what is explained at the very end, very verbally, about the conflict between Earthlings and the, I think the subtitles say Lunarites, uh, the, the, the inhabitants of the moon, essentially, the 
that people are uh, the, the human beings that live on the moon and the the very end verbalizes very much that both are flawed sides but it is quite well made though and wonderfully designed especially the uh, one of the most inspiring sites in Dallas is the robotic uh, attack dogs uh, seemingly made out of dead dogs already already <laughs> Uh, glowing red eyes and just have uh, wires and stuff around their bodies uh, it, it comes out of nowhere it's not like you have a scene where you have a plant uh, where they where, where they take in the dead dogs and make them into robot dogs all of a sudden these burst onto the screen <laughs> and intriguing and, yeah exactly uh, the action scenes are also always very good uh, the big uh, big machinery action scenes with uh, mining machinery and spaceships uh Essentially, essentially fighting a big battle on the moon. Very well designed and very good. So if I take anything away from Dallas, it's uh, uh, definitely the action scenes. Otherwise, the animation... Again, it's 1983, so I, I shouldn't really say that animation is bad, but it, compared to the action scenes, the other parts are a bit more stiff, which I'm not, not sure if that means that they wanted to focus more on the spectacle and less on the human story and therefore not spend too much time on the animation uh, animation but it's still my my little uh, uh my little note on this four-part oba which, which is uh, still um uh, a recommended watch though and it's easy to watch too for two hours you can watch that in one night for 30 minute episodes essentially but on the subject of oba in, in, in simple terms they are a series made specifically for home video and there seems to be a complex rule book here at play but in the rule book in general in terms of for instance series length and episode lengths seem to vary quite a bit there can be anything between 20 minutes to two hours even uh, and in general they are con considered bigger budgeted than regular tv series uh, as well as having you know traits of creative freedom uh, inherited in production to flesh out plot and character development and that is of course a great advantage if you're adapting manga source material extensive manga source material and popular ova titles uh, are the likes of uh, the cyberpunk action bubblegum crisis and tenshi moyo which has turned into tv series and films as well after it gained the popularity out there right and a little sidebar to the ova um and by extension, it's a live action equivalent, which is uh, V Cinema, the mm. name of our uh, our site over at uh, V Cinema. Um, as that, these are both uh, direct to video mediums, and I, I believe that term is probably used uh, in your neck of the woods too, right, Kenneth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, video. yeah. Everybody yeah. says the DTV as well, you know. Right, that's the hip term for it all. Right, exactly. So this market that had uh, arisen in the, in the early 80s, approximately. And, you know, when we think of direct-to-video, at least in the U.S., you know, we think of, of course, really bad movies. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's certainly the case as well in Japan, too. A lot of the V-Cinema films, V-Cinema uh, actually stands for video cinema. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those films are really low-budget, usually Yakuza or... They call them Yankee or um, juvenile delinquent films, lots of horror films, you know, usually more genre-oriented uh, fare. Some some uh, uh, Takashi Miike stuff would be considered V-Cinema? Yeah, Miike uh, started off in V-Cinema uh, by all means, and then it wasn't until a little later on, uh, maybe possibly like after a dozen, maybe even more movies, that he actually got a film into the theaters, yeah. 
Um, but anyway, so um, it's kind of interesting that, you know, there's this association with the quality of what's on screen uh, with uh, V Cinema in Japan, as well as direct-to-video films in um, in the United States and Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing that's kind of interesting, though, is that OVA... Uh, you know, did not necessarily have that same association because, uh, you know, as we're sort of talking about now, you know, the, some of these OVA, uh, uh, some of these titles that started out as OVA have become, you know, sort of these sort of cherished uh, properties hmm. in the uh, anime world. Um, you mentioned that Tenchi Muyo is now a um, TV series, you know, that definitely shows that people have hung on to that series as opposed to, you know, I mean, can you name ten direct-to-video films, Kenneth? Well, I know you can probably, oh. since you specialize <laughs> in that. But um, you know, most people probably can't. You know, because it was just basically stuff to make money. Um, you know, low-budget fare to make money. And uh, another thing that's kind of interesting to mention, because this did not happen in the U.S. and um, and Europe so much, is that. Uh, a lot of these direct-to-video mediums came as a direct result of the fall of the uh, Japanese studio system. Um, studio system, of course, meaning the film studios, you know, places like Toei, Toho, Nikatsu, etc., who had previously, you know, ruled the entertainment world with their large film studios who produced, you know, directors like Kurosawa, Ozu, mm. uh, Naruse, etc., you know, they suddenly had collapsed, you know, due to, you know, mainly due to the rise of television entertainment. And, of course, you know, back in the uh, late 70s when the VCR was introduced, you know, this gave way to the direct-to-video OVA, V-Cinema industries Mm -hmm. that could um, basically thrive on the fact that people wanted entertainment and they wanted it at home. You know, and again, more so in Japan here because of that fall of the studio system and the rise of the TV studio system that, you know, these mediums were able to exist uh, and for pretty long, too, because I I think V-Cinema is still a term that's used in uh, film and it's very much... It's, of course, you know, people don't use videotapes anymore, but, you know, it's still sort of... Uh, used in the sense that, you know, a lot of films still go directly to DVD and Blu-ray without even reaching the theaters. Do, do you ever, um, or did you ever get a sense of um, of a Laserdisc being popular in Japan or that was still a luxury oh, format yeah, yes, to yes. own? I mean, I, mean, I right. knew Laserdiscs mm-hmm. were expensive as hell, but uh, did, did you get a sense that that was uh, at all popular in Japan? Oh, yes, yes, by all means. Yeah, when we talk about, again, V-Cinema is is mainly a video medium ova was mainly a video medium but um yeah very much so that uh, laser discs were also um, a part of the industry too i think of course um i can't think of any films that were direct to video uh, uh direct to laser discs so i don't think there was such an industry in that sense laser disc was probably seen as more of a collector's medium possibly mm-hmm. or a um cinephile medium possibly um by all means though if you are a laser disc collector now you know that a lot of the best laser discs came out of japan Hmm. um in terms of the quality in terms of them being not being cut 
uh, that kind of thing. I, I've, I've never collected laser discs myself, but when I was a um, tape trader, you know, a lot of people would take the laser disc rip and, you know, put that onto uh, videotape and basically, you know, we would trade that. And those, mm-hmm. those rips were always the best quality. You know, yeah. it was never the, you know, of course, you know, when you copy a videotape, you know, the quality gets worse and worse, you know, generations down the line. Mm. But with, uh, you know, laser disc, um, you know, the quality could always remain pretty pristine. Yeah. So after this OVA uh, OVA beginning, what followed is I say the main subject of this podcast, the main review, and that's the animated feature Angel's Egg. (laughs) (laughs) Made in nineteen eighty five and produced by what I think is future Studio Ghibli CEO Toshio Suzuki, and it's an almost dialogueless almost fairly abstract experience as well that various sources say collect to biblical imagery and it's hard not to agree with that actually after you've seen yeah. the film uh, but I'm, I'm not in, in a position to go on a huge uh, detailed uh, dissection of that because uh, it's not the aspects that uh, sort of uh, hit me that I understand at all times but there, there is some pretty concrete imagery uh, in terms of uh, the biblical imagery in angel's eggs but uh, we'll talk about yeah, that it, later you uh, or, say yeah, that yeah, it kind of slaps you in the face actually yeah, exactly. <laughs> um okay I- interesting enough in terms of the ghibli connection and its founders um uh, hayao miyazaki and isao takata they collaborated with oshi on the project anchor that actually never came to be due to disagreements uh, creatively but later on ghost in the shell 2 innocence in 2004 was supported by ghibli money and Oshi has been quoted as saying, d- despite before criticizing Miyazaki's attitude towards his workers, he has been quoted as saying that he would feel strangely empty and it would be boring if both Miyazaki and Takahata stopped making films. Which is an interesting uh, uh, divide there, but it se- seems honest enough. Then again, I haven't read the quote about his criticism against his workers, if it's uh, juvenile criticism or even well-thought-out criticism, but... Uh, mm. He he yeah he he has opinions apparently Oshi <laughs> and uh, yes uh, later on joining the production group Headgear and he launched with them what would be the is it Pat Labor or Pat Lablo or how do you how, how do you pronounce that I mean yeah as as a Westerner I've always pronounced it Pat Labor <laughs> right okay uh, I, I'm, I actually don't know what the Japanese um, script looks like uh but uh why don't you go ahead and talk and i'll look that up yeah. okay uh this was launched with the headgear the, the mecha big robot big machinery design franchise that franchise that you know has grown into a juggernaut a juggernaut over the years and it was a seven episode ova that was initiated in 1988 and Two feature-length movies was directed by Oshi in 1989 and 1993. That's Pat Labor 1 and 2, simply put, I think. And it is described as a series of films that project a dynamic near-future world in which grave social crises and ecological challenges are overcome by technological ingenuity. So, uh, you know, big machinery, but uh, some thought behind it as well, I, I guess is... Uh, Seems like anyway. I haven't seen them yet anyway. We're gonna we're gonna definitely focus on one or two of the features for this series, I think. Yes. Uh also around this time we get a taste of Mamoroshi's extensive 
Kerberos saga, his life work, if you will, starting with the, his debut in live action, the feature of the Red Spectacles, done in 1987. And it's since then, and it started really early as well, it's a multimedia military science fiction franchise uh, portraying an alternate universe, alternate timeline, and uh, portrays uh, the uh, fictional Tokyo Special Armed Garrison, whose emblem and nickname is uh, Kerberos, which is named after the mythological three-headed watchdog of hell that uh, Hades uh, had beside him. Cerberus, Uh, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, The Greek god of the underworld. Uh, But it started out as as a radio drama, so it was already multimedia before the Red Spectacles uh, came around, and it's been uh, done uh, in manga form, and uh, feature animes, and uh, merchandise is out there, and and it continues to expand even to this day. Uh, a Taiwan set live feature f- uh, within the saga followed in 1991. That's called Stray Dog, Kerberos Panzer Cops. Uh, Oshi scripted the 1999 anime uh, Gene Rowe, The Wolf Brigade. And he continues to be active in his life work as it uh, continues to be published in mangas. And there's even been expressed plans to produce a 3D CG animated feature based on the radio drama called Kerberos Panzer Blitzkrieg Projects. Ooh, boy, that sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, before I go into my sidebar here, um, I want to report that, indeed, the uh, name of the anime is Patoreba in Japanese. So Pat Labor is fine in in English. So so at this point, uh, yeah, I wanted to go into a sidebar about um, Oshi as auteur. Um, I had mentioned this uh, actually a few minutes ago that... uh, you know, with his work, his uh, earlier work with Urusei Atsuda, um, that, uh, you know, you might contrast with his later work as being, you know, how how did this change happen? And it's probably not the case that there was a change. I mean, you know, certainly it's a case that in any kind of uh, field that you have to get your feet wet in, um, in projects sometimes that you might not have any kind of vision for that you're working for someone else's vision or mm-hmm. that you're doing someone else's uh labor not their pat labor of course but uh, <laughs> their labor um to get their own vision across and you know it's certainly the case that if you look at um his later works and you know even his early early individual works as we're going to talk about with angel's egg that he has this particular vision of what he wants to do with animation Mm -hmm. and i think that you have to sort of i think that auteur when you think of the word auteur you there's been this sort of association um in meaning of auteur to mean like great Mm -hmm. and auteur does not mean great auteur (laughs) just means author in, in english anyway and an auteur just basically is someone who has a particular vision and style to their work. Um, you know, certainly people like Kurosawa, Ozu, who I mentioned before, but even people like uh, Scorsese, you know, these people who have th- these particular, uh, not only their vision to the work, but a lot of times they put in their own particular um, character or their own particular um sometimes idiosyncrasies in the case of like Woody Allen, let's say, and sometimes just their own particular visual themes. And, uh, you know, especially in the case of uh, repetitious themes, you know, um, as we're probably going to end up um, 
covering in uh, Olshi's work, you know, one of his themes is that he likes to put his dog into his films, yes. you yes. know, um, which is, you know, again, something that is kind of a little goofy in a lot of his films, but yeah. it is a, part a, of... And, and a basset hound, nonetheless, I think. Right, right, exactly. And <laughs> basset hounds, you know, they have those really kind of goofy faces, too, which, yeah. you know, sort of breaks... The, maybe breaks the mood of the story, but you know, for him, that's part of what he wants to put in his story, mm-hmm. and that's basically what an auteur is. You know, don't, don't make people think that auteur means great or highfalutin or better than everyone else or anything like that. It just means that someone who has their own particular uh, visual style and theme and kind of runs, and those themes actually run along their careers and you know i think a lot of times this word auteur gets applied to only film directors as you know i've mentioned a few already but you know when you look at people like ulshi as well as miyazaki and these other animators who are you know i guess you could say they are great on their own and again auteur does not mean great by any means but they have developed this style and this theme and this way of working that definitely falls along the lines of, you know, what we here in the West call the auteur theory, this theory that that a person given, you know, their own mind and everything will go along this path of developing themes and um, visual statements uh, regarding their works. So, you know, I I think that this is something that's going to sort of, I think this is Kenneth, part of the reason why that you have chosen Oshi uh, in your series, not necessarily I don't think you necessarily did consciously, but it's just the case that Oshi, whether you like him or not, has this sort of way of doing things and this this theme to his style and this Mm -hmm. auteur approach to his work so um you know whether it's important or not is kind of up to interpretation but you know definitely there is this auteur theory that can be applied to him i just like big machinery (laughs) (laughs) big robot kill uh but but yeah i mean Maybe I should have said that at the top of the show, but really, I, I found several of his movies rather involving on, on a philosophical level and a visual level, and I just think a lot of stuff is very cool, and it, 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 it's compelling, I'm not sure at all times why, and, and maybe that was in line with, her, with the fact that I think it's cool, it, it's atmospheric, and Angel's Egg is, um, uh, at least the first viewing many years ago was a very f- favorable viewing, but I didn't really get the movie, but, but I, I enjoyed the uh, hearing it and seeing it as well. Oh, certainly, yes. And and uh, Oshii has been very influential. um, So he's kind of almost paid back to the film community as uh well, because there are filmmakers who have been influenced by him in turn. Exactly. And we'll actually talk a little bit about that, because we reached a part of his career that remains remains to this day a continually quoted milestone, and it's the 1995 anime cyberpunk film, if you will, uh, Ghost in the Shell which concerns a female cyborg desperate to find the meaning of her existence. And the film was a critical success upon release in 95, and it is widely regarded to be a masterpiece and anime classic. And at the time, it was notable for blending computer and cell animation, and even crossed over to non-anime fans in North America to an extent where even at that time or later on, acclaimed filmmakers such as uh, Larry, or rather that would be Lana and and Wachowski. Uh, Larry had a 
Sex Change, I believe. So it's uh, Lana and, and Wachowski, uh, the directors of the Matrix trilogy, and uh, James Cameron uh, uh, as well. They have expressed huge admiration and admitted to being influenced by Oshie's film, and maybe films. I mean, I think uh, Wachowski's essentially said, you know, we want to make that but for real in regards to Ghost in the Shell, essentially. And uh, they and they took, of course, uh, Hong Kong action cinema influences and uh, really took on them and well. Uh, I don't know if the Oshie influence is considered to be uh, a huge part of the Matrix, uh, but uh, regardless, I still think the first Matrix, anyway, is, uh, is pretty spot on in, in all places. Uh, without turning it into a Matrix podcast, I'll, I'll just say that. I like the first. I don't know what happened with the second and third. Bogus. Bogus, man. I'm Whoa. sorry. Whoa. <laughs> it was not even whoa, like like when watching an Oshi film. Because I can, <laughs> I, I can actually sit there and go, whoa. But uh, this was... Uh... But uh, anyway, after essentially that time in the mid-90s, Oshi took a break from projects altogether, it seemed, before returning with the Japanese-Polish, here we go with the Polish connection again, <laughs> uh, live-action project Avalon in 2001. Uh, we'll probably take that on because I, I, I really dig Avalon. I'm not sure I ever understood it, but I really dig watching that. But uh, a rewatch maybe like with Angel's, Angel's Egg will reveal some something concrete for me. But we, we jump ahead from 01 to 04 and the long-awaited sequel to Ghost in the Shell, which was Ghost in the Shell 2, in a sense, came out in 04. And uh, the 2008 anime, if we jump ahead to uh, 08, uh, The Skycrawlers, is set to present an alternate history in which war has been privatized, children are manufactured and sent to aerial battles, which are exploited for commercial entertainment, which sounds uh, nice and family friendly. <laughs> and I haven't seen the Skycrawler, so that, that might be a good, uh, good, uh, good one to have at the uh, tail end of the series. In uh, the year after, in 2009, he returned to live action with uh, Assault Girls. And uh, gaming fans might be interested to know that Oshi served as creative director for the production IG segment for the short film project Halo Legends, uh, which is uh, you know enough of a franchise apparently that Halo gets its its own film project, short film project anyway. Uh, which I'm not sure exactly when it was, uh, but uh, around about this time anyway, um, for sure. Uh, Production IG is the studio that Oshi has been working with on the likes of Pat Labour and Ghost of the Shell. So, uh, and and I think Production IG was also behind the uh, standalone complex uh, TV series, uh, yeah. uh, Ghost in the Shell TV series. But I'm I'm not too sure Oshi was on that in a pronounced way. Anyway, I didn't find any huge credit for him on standalone complex. But it featured the same main characters. Uh, at least uh, the male main character was in the first series of Standalone Complex. Uh, but uh, I only saw those uh, episodes and didn't uh, venture outside of those. And finally, if the following info is current, I'm not 100% sure. But uh, Oshi has announced his next live action project, uh, 28 and a half, will be an adaptation of uh, Tesujin 28 Go the 1956 manga by uh, uh, Mitsutero Yokoyama, which is about the adventures of a boy and his giant robot named Tetsujin 28. Yeah, very famous uh, manga and anime series. Yeah, Yeah, I think uh, we can go back to uh, a little bit uh, as a a sidebar talking about uh, Oshii as the auteur again here because... um, 
I think one of the uh, one of the components of uh, being an auteur, um, and I think you know one of the components of, be, of uh, auteur theory in general is just that um, you are able to adapt, or I shouldn't say you because it's not you, Kenneth, but um, the auteur is able to sort of adapt to the different kinds of media that uh, occur through, you know, the progression and evolution of uh, media in general. So, for example, you know, we were talking earlier about him working on um, TV uh, anime, and then it goes into film, and then we're talking Mm -hmm. about OVA, and then we're talking about all these different mediums, video games, you know, et cetera, as well as, as I said, the paying forward of influencing uh, people like the Wachowski brothers and uh, James Cameron into this sort of um, thing where, oh, she is, you know, whether, you know, and I, whether you like him or not, and I've already mentioned him as being as uh, pretty much of a polarizing figure, you know, even within the community hmm. that, um, you know, that he is still part of this auteur theory. And, you know, part of, and as I mentioned, part of that is sort of his evolution through the different mediums and, you know, what will happen in the future, possibly with future medium, you know, it's like, will he, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Exactly. I mean, obviously, you know, you've said that he has some interest in doing 3d, um, animation, but, you know, maybe there might be something like, you know, uh, I don't know, VR is that is that still a, is that still something that can be considered futuristic? You know, virtual <laughs> reality. If we have virtual reality animation, I'm sure that will she will be interested in doing that, right? Well, well hopefully just... he won't go back to other movies and make more 2.0 versions, and that's a reference to Ghost in the Shell <laughs> 2.0, which I don't need to see more than stills of to know that I I have no <laughs> idea what went on in his head when uh, re- reduxing and reimagining uh, Ghost in the Shell, but. Uh, uh, m- maybe we'll do a bonus episode on the 2.0 and just force, I, I, right. I, and I'll force myself to watch 2.0 and judge it on its own merits. But I'm not looking forward to it. I think it looks like shit texture. Yeah, and that that is one of his polarizing works, you know. Yeah, there you go. But um, well, even that, I, as a great mm-hmm. fan of Ghost in the Shell, pardon me, I, I love Ghost in the Shell, and that that scares me. The 2.0 version, like, what are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, pardon me. Oh, yeah. No, not a problem. So, again, we're talking about here the, you know, new media in the future, you know. So, so I kind of feel as if, you know, Oshi, I, of course, Oshi, I don't think would ever call himself an auteur. He'd probably shy away from that term, you know, altogether, you know, even though it's, you know, permeates his work, basically. But I, I think you could see that he would be interested in these, um, you know, new mediums. But at the same time, it's kind of interesting that Ulshi himself is sort of, uh, you know, and going back to what I said about him being a polarizing force in the, in the even in the anime community, you know, he's spoken out against a lot of stuff in anime, you know, mm-hmm. things like, you know, trends and things that happen within anime. So he's not just like this anime master who you know supports everything that's anime you know he definitely as you've mentioned before has his opinions about things and they're not exactly the most flattering of opinions if Mm. you are a fan of animation you know so so again this is something i think that um you know that this is a thread i think that will probably run through your series here kenneth is that uh is sort of looking at oshi his approach his outlook you know his philosophies things that have happened to him in the past and what um 
you know, what we might expect from him in the future. Right on. Uh, and b before we launch into the break in the feature review, I mean, we, we, we without, you know, spending an hour on anything, l l let's go back to basics, really. H how much of an anime fan are you, John? And do, do you remember how you were even introduced to, uh, to, well, to manga or, and or anime? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, after all this talking that we've done just about Oshii himself, I'm actually not a fan of anime or manga. Um, and this might seem as somewhat of a surprise. Um, I would maybe consider myself an enthusiast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, people might think to themselves, well, what's the difference between a fan and an enthusiast? Well, I, I think in my case, the difference is I, I don't put much money into... <laughs> into um, <laughs> you know, watching anime or collecting manga or anything, you know, it's like if something floats my way, I'll watch it or read it as it were, you know, I rent the stuff, I'll watch it in streaming, you know, on Netflix or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think my main interest in it is to keep up with um, my interest in Japan in general. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm very much an enthusiast and uh, of uh, Japanese things and, you know, Japanese culture, et cetera, you know, um, having, you know, studied the language, having lived there before, et cetera, you know, it's very much a part of my life. And, you know, even though I'm not a big fan of anime and manga, I still feel compelled to follow uh, the two mediums just because they feed so much into not just pop culture in Japan, but just modern culture in general. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, Manga is like, I would say, you know, the thing that, yeah, you can, you can definitely say that it's a big part of pop culture, but, you know, in everyday life, you know, for example, reading the newspaper, you're out in the town, you're going to see these things that are definitely very manga influenced, like, for example, signage, you know, things like, um, you know, just everyday signs like do not enter and stuff like that, you know, mm -hmm. they'll have little cartoon characters you know that are very manga like in their appearance you know and you know where does that come from well it comes from the japanese the the uh the permeation of manga in japanese society so mm -hmm. you know very much so that i think that um not just me but anyone who has an interest in japan sort of has to keep their eyes on manga and anime you know whether you like it or not and sort of be able to understand how those two mediums are incorporated into Japanese culture as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and now, as far as how I was introduced to it, um, now manga, I, I'm, I can't even remember because, you know, being, um, being of Asian descent, you know, I mean, I've had cousins and friends who had, you know, manga when they were young, and we didn't call it manga. We just thought of it as just comic books, just like, you know, mm -hmm. Richie Rich and C Casper the Ghost, and, you know, I'm totally aging myself by naming those two <laughs> characters there. But, you know, just like, you know, whatever, Archie comics and stuff yes. like that, you know, it was just a part of, you know, childhood reading material and you know and i you know i i um I, I think the anime came a little bit later and it's certainly the case that you know here in the the san francisco bay area where i was raised that um we did have animation on television we had you know things like what was it uh, battle of the stars i forget the names of the particular titles right now before we move on i wanted to back up a little bit because i made a little mistake i, I actually mentioned a title uh, uh an anime title that was on tv that, that i grew up with uh, as being battle of the stars it's not battle of the stars battle of the planets right right <laughs> which is also known as gachaman in uh in japan it was brought over 
by uh, Sandy Frank Productions uh, back in the uh, I think it was the mid seventies or so. So that was the show that I, that I grew up with. Not 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 Battle of the Stars. As I said, you know, I grew up again. You know, in the seventies here and and in the Bay Area, they played a lot of uh, Japanese shows. You know, the you know Godzilla, Ultraman definitely was on the plate, and a lot of these animation titles that that were brought over um, by American companies and dubbed. And then, um, uh, you know, also, as I mentioned, I had friends who were Asian, who were, you know, for example, like exchange students or recent immigrants who brought over a lot of animation from uh, from where they were from. So, like, uh, for example, I had a Taiwanese friend who had introduced me to a lot of um, animation at uh, animation at the time that, you know, again, we didn't call animation. We just thought of them as, you know, cartoons. Mm-hmm. So... That's kind of how I was kind of raised. And then, you know, when I think the big revelation for for when I stopped thinking of all this stuff as just regular cartoons on TV to where it became this sort of animation, this sort of, you know, monolithic word animation that appeared in everyday society was probably Akira, which mm-hmm. was yeah, of course. You know, for a lot of Westerners their first real introduction into animation, you know. I think it ended up being my first uh, actual uh, taste of it as well. Uh, uh, Now that I think of it, I didn't even watch any any episodes of Crying Freeman or Gaiba or what have you. I think it was, you know, it was that, the the very very first and what a a smack smack in the everywhere that was. Mm. (laughs) I've not seen anything like it. And uh, Well, the funny thing is that, like... um, as I mentioned, there was this, there was this shift sort of with uh, Akira in that it was not considered, you know, just a cartoon. It was considered animation, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the way it was presented uh, by a friend of mine was that, you know, oh, I have this sort of animation movie, you know, why don't you check it out? I think this was maybe I can't even remember what year it was, and I was mm-hmm. just like, okay, well, whatever, you know. I'll give it a look, and then I was watching it. I'm just like, oh, isn't this just like cartoons? You know, I mean, I remember this stuff. You know, it's the Japanese stuff that was dubbed, and I was watching it. You know, mm-hmm. and of course, we all know how surreal that Akira can uh, can get. You know, mm-hmm. and then that that's when I sort of realized that you know, yeah, it's not just kitty cartoons. You know, it's mm-hmm. there's this whole different world. There's these subgenres of animation and manga as i mentioned you know, there's sports and there's you know sci-fi and this it, hentai just, yeah <laughs> i hope we don't have to get into that no, no we won't we won't i have no decide <laughs> so you know i think that that was definitely the sort of uh, the sea change in in thinking about you know what animation and manga uh could be mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for, there was never an exposure on actual you know, Swedish home video, but a friend of mine I know bought and owned um, UK released uh, uh, movies and TV series, which uh, meant there was a, ridic- a ridiculous amount of tapes for just you know the first twelve episodes of Crime Free Man or Gaiva. I actually have the entire Gaiva set, which I think is ridiculously. Uh, huge in tape volume you know i think it has only maybe one episode per tape and it's 20 <laughs> minutes long <laughs> uh, I, I like guy but uh, it's ridiculous really uh, so but but he 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 never really introduced me to uh, akira it was more he wanted me to watch a little slight tangent on hentai he wanted me to watch uh, urutsukudui legend of the Obi-Fiend, 
Oh. And yeah, I even now I'm, I'm quite into you know Hong Kong cinema, Hong Kong erotica, and I don't mind it. But that was complete garbage. <laughs> uh, and but he, I, oh, I come think on, it, it was more garbage because he sold it to me as something very meaningful and epic and that cover of the <laughs> demon over the city you know and five minutes in there's ejaculation on screen oh. okay and, and bear in mind this was a heavily cut version in the uk anyway but uh th- that was it and i was like <sighs> okay i'll give so, it a go. so I, I i i hope that he's no longer friends with you he's <laughs> uh, it's, it's very much one of my best friends but we don't exchange exchange anime anymore <laughs> I hope uh, so, you don't exchange anything with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so uh, that never appealed to me. I, but more, what, what appealed to me? But I, I, I'm a sparse selected viewer, if you will. Like, I mean, I've, I've watched uh, Akira, I watched Ghost in the Shell, and some some works here and there. But I'm not an avid follower. I, I I pick up some stuff here and there, and I think the most exposure I've gotten to anime is via Oshi, uh, watching. You know, first of all, Ghost in the Shell, Angel's Egg, and uh, and later on, uh, Gene Rowe, The Wolf Brigade, which was scripted by him. So it seems like I followed him, and it it turned out to be animation, rather than uh, I follow it, me, me following that uh, anime uh, intent intensely. I've I've no real desire to, to be honest. A few things appeals to me in that. And that's pretty much it. In short, though, because we, we are getting, getting into the review soon, and uh, this, this series is obviously more than just one part, but, uh, you know, it, the, it it's a yes or no question in actuality, now that I think of it. Uh, in regards to the, to the works of Mamoru Oshii for you, does he, is a, do you have a polarizing opinion of him as well, if you know what I mean? No, not really, because, again, I don't really... Think I can consider myself an anime fan, so I, I don't really feel like um, I have much stake in what uh, he his opinion is about animation. Mm. I mean, if he had some opinion about you know world politics, I might have you know more of an opinion about uh, him in general. Mm. You know, um, so and, and, I, and not and not an avid watcher of uh, his live action work as such either. <laughs> no, uh, probably not that either. I mean, right. there's some interesting stuff in there, but uh, it's a lot of trash too. Um, but I, I'm just kind of more interested in, again, Oshi as this sort of uh, presence, you know, more, uh, more so than his maybe his the more detailed look at his work, mm-hmm. etc. So, but you know, again, this is something that um, the series is is good for me because it allows me to sort of look at things in greater detail rather than than j- to just you know look at something and just say like oh okay well you know next you know <laughs> <laughs> we, we, which I'm glad to hear because it's uh, as I said it was really the purpose and. Um of this series to to kind of treat it that way as and right. give it our give it our take based on uh, us being very new to the work and all of that right. and uh, even though a- Angel's Egg is a rewatch it's still felt like a new watch I got a whole lot more of it uh, this time around but more on that after the break.
Welcome back and the feature review, the selected movie. We're only doing one movie of this uh, first uh, first Japan on Fire 6 on Oshie is 1985's Angel's Egg, as we talked about before the break. And background, I mean, we, we, we did some, but it, it can, I don't know if you can really provide a lot of background or, because it's a very sparse film and you really should cut right to the chase. But I'll, I'll mention a few few points that might be interested, interesting for for fans that this was a collaboration by uh, between rather Oshi and popular artist uh, Yoshitaka Amano known for his illustrations on among other things Vampire Hunter D and uh, the music was uh, composed by Yoshihiro Kano who apparently rarely composes uh, film scores and, right. uh, and otherwise, Oshi is known to work a lot with composer Kenji Kawai, I believe. Right. Or Kawai. Uh, yeah, and uh, l- a little side note about uh, Amano and uh, Kano. Amano and Kano. That sounds like a comedy <laughs> troupe. Um, Amano, uh, for video game fans, is best known for his artwork in the uh, Final Fantasy series. Ah. Um, uh, mainly the, uh, the uh, older or the um, the earlier uh, iterations of that series. And actually, you can see a lot of his style in uh, Angel's Egg, especially um, the one thing that I noted was the hair. Yes. I mean, if you look at the hair on the girl in Angel's Egg and you compare it to a lot of his other work, especially in Final the Final Fantasy um, uh, cover art, that um, you know he loves to do like this sort of free-flowing... Uh, individually animated follicles it seems like mm-hmm. you know it's not actually follicles because you know back then it would be ex- extremely costly to do but it's like these <laughs> wafts or swaths of hair that um, that are just individually uh, animated you know that's definitely Amano's sort of uh, trademark style as ter- terms of hair as well as the face too if you look at the girl's face or even the um the uh, I guess we can call them the warriors' face uh, in Angel's Egg, very much uh, Amano's style, right, um, okay. sort of like this down, sort of downcast face, a little bit um, simplistic, but yet uh, you know detailed enough to mm. be able to see you know certain uh, characteristics uh, physically of that face, and, um, and, and apparently mm-hmm. a collaboration that seemed to work out then, because if you can say you can see a lot of Amano's style, then Oshi didn't went in. And, you know, made it his style, and then you got a sort of a Frankenstein monster of both. It seems like it's very purely him. Right, right. Another note about Amano is that uh, he you know, he did work on uh, Sandman, which was uh, was a Neil Gaiman, if I remember correctly. Right. And uh, yeah, I was looking at uh, some of his work on that uh, particular title, and um, it's a, a little less characteristic of his style, but uh, still there very much. Um, you know, so that's, uh, that's kind of an interesting thing to note. Now about Kano, uh, you mentioned that you know he doesn't do soundtracks very much, and that uh, that's certainly the case. Um, I think the only other soundtrack that I know that he's done was for a TV drama called mm-hmm. um, Honono Tachi. If, if I remember correctly, it was an NHK Taiga drama they call them, which is basically just a, um, a drama that's set back in the uh, in olden times. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but he's very well known as a classical composer in Japan, and uh, I really actually love the soundtrack for the, yeah, the it, film. Yeah, it, it certainly reeks of uh, a classical composer 
mm-hmm. handling this soundtrack, and we'll certainly right. get into that. Uh, an odd fact <laughs> attached to this, uh, mm-hmm. and it will be a more uh, in-depth discussion, at least uh, in terms of reviewing the movie, is uh, that Angel's Egg was later put into the Australian sci-fi movie in the aftermath from 1989. It's a mix of live action and footage from Angel's Egg. Uh, apparently legal because the New World Pictures handled this, so it must have been legal. But the, how, how, why, what, uh-huh? Exactly. <laughs> it just sounds insane, that mixture. And uh, um, at this time, I haven't watched it. I have it on its way to me. I'm really looking forward to seeing what what this is about because it was news to me and it just sounds like are they trying to make a very cool artistic statement or is it just like you right. described we in pre-chat like a c-grade sci-fi movie right yeah and um i would say you know before you actually get the film you know you said that you're kind of excited to watch it well uh, dampen your expectations well, well it's not the expectations just like i i can't wait to see this mixture regardless if it's uh and it's short too apparently but way below 80 minutes so that's uh i i can watch anything that's way below 80 minutes yeah um, angel take is 71 minutes so it's uh, a very uh very easily easily digestible running time but uh maybe not uh as a movie as such but the discussion will follow after a brief, brief plot here. Uh, it follows the daily life of an unnamed young girl in a surreal world of darkness and shadows. And the girl is the keeper of a mysterious egg that she carries around uh, in her daily, daily routines, if you will. She spends her time collecting bottles and artifacts in this gothic abandoned city. But she starts interacting with a man who arrives in the dark town one day riding a big red and black machine and wearing a cross-like weapon on his back and that's the uh, main setup for this movie that has exactly one line of dialogue during the first 20 minutes which should say a whole lot <laughs> where this movie is uh, what, what this movie is attempting in a way and this is a discussion that we, we, we won't necessarily say exactly what happens in the end but to discuss it you really need to spoil certain aspects of it and provide your interpretation of it and that sort of spoils the movie I think so if you're interested in uh, Angel's Egg um, go into it clean so to say without any background on it and, uh, right. and uh, draw your own conclusions and see how it matches ours I guess uh, and uh, so that's your spoiler warning and as we always do with these things I'd like to hear your sort of quick take quick opinion of the movie first before we go into a uh, uh, more longer discussion and specific discussion so in 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 short john is it uh yay or nay for angel's egg <laughs> um yeah that's a good question <laughs> it's hard apparently it's kind of i mean i'm i guess i'm kind of famous on the v cinema show you know our podcast for being sort of like always putting in these conditionals uh, and not really <laughs> taking a stance of you know it's definitely worth watching or it's definitely worth avoiding um, so Angel's Egg, if I had to say yay or nay, I, I would say yay, I guess. Right. Um, okay. I think that at least visually speaking, you know, it's a, it's a film that's worth checking out. Now, whether, you know, you want to subject yourself to having to interpret the, the film in any way is kind of up to you, you know, but, yeah. uh, I, you know, at least in my, um, in, in my in my Twitter-like answer, I, I guess I could just say, yay. <laughs> way below 80 characters. But, but, wait, but wait until we actually analyze the film, and you might yeah. find out that I might not actually say yay. 
and, that's uh, all I have and, to say. Yeah, and I would be simple about it as well as say, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I really dig it and got a whole lot of uh, out of it uh, this time around, uh, rather than when I watched it maybe three, four years ago when I got the. Uh, I don't care if this is wrong to say. I got the subtitle bootleg because there's no official subtitle the version of it. Mm-hmm. So what are you gonna do? Uh, although it's not hard to subtitle this movie, there's not a whole lot of dialogue. But uh, but then again, yeah. it, it may be hard to subtitle it because if you if you're going to be serious about it, you need to uh, do it right for a movie that is very uh, sparse sure. and uh, requires your attention. So so mm-hmm. a well done job, whoever did sit down with it. Right. Well, that person, I'm sure, did all all they basically had to have was a Bible, you know. <laughs> and knowledge of a few Japanese words outside. <laughs> Who are you? That's and yeah. the quotations on the Bible. Okay. Exactly. Uh, leading here, I, I I expected though, because I I feel I'm getting dumber by every year that goes by. I I expected to look back at my notes that I made during the film, and just be hella confused, uh, due to the random nature of it, that none of it would make mm-hmm. sense afterwards. And but then again, that I would be okay with it that i didn't fully get it uh i don't fully get what i just tried to say on paper here but mm. that's fine i i still say yay i'm you know and i'm sure my notes throughout this review will feel random as well and there will be a lot of question marks after after each and everything i say but still i i, I think i have a better grasp of what angel's egg is conveying right. and portraying well- well, let me, uh, yeah, let me uh, make the statement here that, uh, you know, my assumption of this film is that it's kind of, it's going to be pretty divisive if you watch it. I mean, I think that anyone can at least try to appreciate the visuals, but uh, I oh, yeah. think in general, viewers are either going to believe it's communicating a valid or even a profound message, but I think others are just going to just view it as being slow, boring art house crap, you know I mean? Yeah. You know, just to put things on the line here, I mean, that, that's why, I, you know, I was saying before, yay, but, you know, if you could hear my voice, you could hear that <laughs> it was some, like, somewhat conditional, and I think that the, those are the conditions that I'm talking about. Uh, and kind of, the, and I would say that the fact that Oshi himself claims to not know what the film means sort of validates both sides. I mean, you <laughs> could basically say that he's trying to be elusive you know, he's trying to be mysterious, trying to get you to think about the film, or he's just being evasive. He just thinks yeah. it's kind of, you know, some crap that he put together, you know, by cobbling, you know, some biblical passages and visuals together, you know. So, well, well it has been said uh, at one point anyway, I don't know when he made the, this statement that he, he, he puts uh, visual first and characters and stories very much uh, second and third mm. uh, in terms of how he sees his stories his filmmaking right. or what have you and and it would be this would be a pretty good case for that uh, even though yeah. i i still got something out of the story i expected mm-hmm. to get nothing that's the kind of impression i had since three or four years ago so so that was my like low not low expectations but okay i if it's a visual ride only i can i can probably accept it because i did accept it back then but i i got right. some more out of it but but having said that you know it's uh, very much a what what stands out more is that it is an oral and visual experience and mm-hmm. easy to sit down with in my opinion if you want to look at it that way i mean the soundtrack is gorgeous the animation although it's sparse everything is very still but the backgrounds and everything is absolutely in my opinion gorgeously made and and, and not necessarily had its time for 1985 but certainly you know still looks 
good and it's right. and and the imagery whatever it means sometimes is very to me haunting and the atmosphere is uh, is pretty effective pretty memorable. right right yeah it, it excellently conveys a mood in my opinion which is you know why i'd say at least visually speaking you know people want to check out the film it has this almost kind of like like gothic sort of um sci-fi cyberpunk uh you know what it really kind of remind me of it it really remind me of something out of uh heavy metal you know the magazine right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know by extension the the 19 when, when was that film put out 1980 or 1979 yeah, I around about that, yeah, yeah. but I, I could very much see you know a shortened version of angel's egg as a segment in that movie you know not not the later heavy metal frack or fac or whatever it was that came out in the 90s that was kind of shitty in my opinion <laughs> uh, but uh the uh the original one uh back from 1980 or whatever it was you know had that style that a mood that mood that sort of um even the somewhat you know elusiveness of it you know was was there i thought and I mean, you don't really expect out of anime, um, and they, 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 there's a reason we're not going into story yet because I, I followed kind of Oshi's own way of looking at this, uh, going you know through visuals first, you know, mm-hmm. in the, right. this uh, discussion, and, and certainly you don't expect it's not standard imagery to see one of the first uh, Im- images being the the egg in that creepy, almost like a uh, branch like. Uh, contraption you know it's it's sitting in a sort of a, a cradle and within mm-hmm. a uh, and the dark clouds in the background is uh you know it, it's very evocative that imagery i mean obviously right. coming from uh, designs i think very um from um from amano uh, if you see his designs the design gallery on the bootleg that that way you see that it very much looks like it is in the movie. I know he was very uh, faithful. Uh, the production was right. very faithful to the character design. So, you know, I'm in the movie quite early. You know, I'm I'm on board. This is this can be scary, or what? Or what can it be? What is it? You don't mm-hmm. necessarily know what this world is, and 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 certainly for movies, uh, anime feature movies, there there is a step up in uh, in technical quality maybe budget as well so it's no surprise that there's a jump here in quality from dallas uh, the ova to to angel's egg in terms of uh, quality because i think this looks you know miles ahead uh, mm. of uh, of the quality in dallas uh, and, and and again the, the the imagery is very still of course so there's no huge animation to be made at times but it looks absolutely right. spot on when even still you know and uh, the, the the characters uh, convey whatever emotions they are conveying we don't know that it's very uh it's very spot on i think right and i think this is where the european film influence comes into play because you know as i mentioned i, I thought this film was uh um uh you i you could definitely feel a tarkovsky and sort of feel to it you know tarkovsky is very famous for these really long beautiful shots that take mm-hmm frankly kind of sometimes forever to get finished but you know but you know they evoke this mood within you uh you know even though again they take so long to to get through um but um and i kind of felt that yeah imagine by the way uh, imagine by the way if the ending shot was not cut up the ending shot of angel's egg that very slow pullback i i I, my memory was that it was uh, 
a continuous shot. But I realized that, oh my God, that would, would last 30 minutes. And they, they, yeah. they, it only lasted two or three with some, uh, with some jump cuts, if you will. <laughs> right. But uh, I, you, you know, if you, if you talk about imagery that you remember from, from the film, it's certainly a very striking opening images for, for the characters and certainly the girl. I mean, I, I, this is a girl who literally looks like an angel because she's, uh, and uh, the colors chosen for her are normally very contrasting white and black right and uh, the long flowing hair that you said comes from uh, uh comes from uh, amano's own style right. you know this collaboration was seen to be a match made in heaven because it's in here and it's very much a huge part of 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 the direction uh, right having her look so you know extremely pale and right. it, it contrasts incredibly well with that dark ominous world you know because normally that world only consists of dark shadows blues grays uh even even right. scary claw-like shapes of trees in the water and the and the score is more ambient sound design at most times than actual uh in, in actual music and quiet as well so it, it it's her that angel if you will in this uh, in this world it's a uh, it's not really comfortable to watch because you don't know this world really uh, why she's walking right. in it and why she's carrying the egg of course right so I mean uh, I, I want to back up a little because uh, you know you're starting to go into interpretation a bit here and, and my take is that your interpretation is that the girl is an angel herself I'm guessing um, I'm, I'm not sure yet we'll, we'll see at the end of the review <laughs> okay. because the analysis it's a lot of questions along the way in the movie is it this way or maybe right. is it this way you know, yeah, so. and I, I think I think it's I think it's something to it, reiterate here that you know, since well, she himself has never really talked about what the film means, that the film has to be open to to interpretation to anyone. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I assume here that we're just going to be giving our personal takes on yeah, you know, what this film meant somewhat to us, right? So yeah, and open to interpretation is not necessarily um, it, it, it's interesting. In, in the case of this, I think it's interesting to, um, right. if it occurs, you know. Sure. L leading into a, a little bit of um, the fact that uh, the movie has some mechanical design as well, uh, with the odd transport that the man arrives on. It's almost an organic... Oh, you mean the, the three red penises? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> almost, That's what uh, I got out yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. Very organic, if you will. Uh, the, the transport that just arrives out of nowhere, you know, ma making this world seem um, it's a it's a red and black now, and this uh, it's a monster that uh, comes out of out of the earth and out of nowhere. And, and at this point, I'm, I'm I and when if you were, don't know who the man is who steps off with the cross, you obviously can make an interpretation of that. But uh, you know, uh, th that's something you can only do right about the end of the film. What actually is going on? But I, I. This twenty thirty minute stretch, maybe it's a, it's all about for me being kind of just on board with 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 the visuals and audio. There's details that are so wonderful to take in, and probably there's details on future viewings as well. You know, for instance, there's gargoyles even looking down when the girl is uh, is taking fa water out of the fountain. There's gargoyles looking down from somewhere. There even seems to be right. uh, the fountain seems to be. Uh, made out of uh, monstrous images as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's a lot of great detail, and you know, which I, 
mentioned earlier, sort of like uh, gives this sort of almost like a gothic again sort of c- cyberpunk sort of feel to it. It's it doesn't really stick with any particular visual uh, theme, but really sort of kind of melts a lot of themes together. And and and, and I guess you you raised the point where uh, after a while when you're into the movie that you you can't need to decide to decide if. I don't know if you think that this is a, is this, and I'm not talking U.S. U.S. specifically, John, but uh, U.S. viewer. Uh, if you think that this is the uh, an end of the world scenario, or not uh, because even in uh, the man's opening scene, he is in a setting with red clouds and and a crushed, crashed ship on a checkered floor. You know, is it even our world? Is it heaven or hell? What, what's going on? But I mean, did. Is that a thought that occurs to you that this is, you know, some kind of end of the world uh, symbolism or scenario that's going on here? Right, yeah, or some kind of a post-apocalyptic uh, scenario of sorts, right? Yeah. So what's your general take on that? What's what's actually, I, you know, because I guess we're moving on to, on to the fact that, uh, into the fact that, they're, you know, trying to give a take on what is going on in this movie, what is being presented to us. So, so in general, what, what's your take on on what Oshie is doing. Actually, I wanted to back up just a teeny bit because, uh, okay. you know, I, I mentioned that uh, Oshie hasn't really explained what the film means and that that could be interpreted as being him being elusive in, you know, that he's trying to basically be mysterious about it or he's trying to be evasive. In other words, you know, he's basically trying to, like, divorce himself from whatever kind of meaning there can be uh, in the film. And I think that... Um, you know, as we mentioned, there's a lot of uh, Christian Catholic imagery in it. Um, and, you know, that can either sit well or not sit well with some viewers, depending on, you know, again, your your taste and your temp- temperamentality and those kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. So, but with that said, you know, I mean, you can, if you look up, uh, if you look into, well, she's, uh, biography or life in a little more detail depending on what you read if it's wikipedia you might see that um you know they there's a claim that Oshi himself was a christian at one point and that he had created this film after he had sort of um had a falling out with the belief mm-hmm. um of course if you read um there's a book about Oshi that's out in English called Stray Dog of Anime, the films of Mamoru Oshi. It's written by uh, Brian Rue, I believe is his last name. Mm-hmm. Um, he just says that Oshi had an interest in Christianity and that uh, he just wanted to study it as a religion, not so much it's uh, uh, getting engaged in its belief, but that, you know, Oshi had even uh, tried to enter a seminary just for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And so if you keep that in mind, I think that you could see there's a lot of imagery that sort of fits in with uh, this sort of, again, either his belief in Christianity or his interest in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to deflect the question, but uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, Ken, was that, you know, with a lot of this imagery... Uh, that is kind of more 
Christian and, you know, I'm not trying to say that you're Christian, but, you know, obviously we're both from Western societies that are very much influenced by Christianity and Catholicism. You know, our laws are as a result of a lot of teachings that are in the Bible, you know. Um, So as a Westerner, I was kind of curious about whether you felt that the imagery was either shoehorned into the picture or if it was a sincere, or you feel it was a sincere expression from Wolshi. And of course, we don't know, you know, we can never know if Wolshi is, you know, his real thoughts about Christianity and whether, you know, he wanted this to be some, you know, grand sweeping, you know, Christian message or anti-Christian message. But I was just kind of thinking, you know, subjectively, did you feel that, you know, whatever kind of Christian message is in there or anti-Christian as it were, whether it was sincere or just sort of forced. I think I'm kind of in the middle of the road because I'm not sure I got, you know, a, a, a true message of the film. I just focused on if there is a story here. And what, what I saw was a doomsday scenario that mm-hmm. evoked, of course, patches, passages from the Bible, from Genesis, I believe, uh, as a right. full-on speech by, by the man in the middle of the film and I don't know if I took away any messages I just saw it as a kind of a haunting doomsday scenario that Mm -hmm. that you know I I instead come back to a question not a question I'm gonna throw back at you but I come back to a question to to myself that is any of this real is it uh, symbolizing something is it the way you know this aftermath you know the the title in the aftermath of the Sea Great Australian movie is kind of good but mm-hmm. so so I, I I know there's very much forced uh, imagery of uh, you know Noah's Ark obviously in the movie in the opening credits he lingers right. on that like like you know like you like you read about but I I, I don't I, I'm I'm I, I guess I'm you know I can't say yay or nay in this case I'm kind of in, in between there. I bring up this question because I mean you know obviously you know. Christian or Catholic imagery is nothing new to film or, you know, even animation to that degree. Um, you know, it's present in a lot of stuff. And, you know, the reason why it's present is because you know, Christianity and Catholicism are, you know, widespread around the world, of course. Um, of course, being that Oshis from Japan, a place where less than, I believe it's 2% of the population practice either religion, you know, mm-hmm. not just one or the other, but either, um, you know, I, I think you can find that in a lot of uh, Japanese media that there's this attempt to evoke um, the symbolicism uh, the symbolic nature or the um the imagery of christianity um in you know in these different kinds of media you know one example i'm thinking of right now is uh, i'm not sure if you're a video game player uh, kenneth but um a little bit okay uh back in the playstation one era there was a game called uh xenogears um, it was a role-playing game that was put out by uh, Square Enix, as we mm. know them today. And um, for a while, it was thought that this game might be banned in the West. Um, again, this is the PlayStation 1 day, so that was like around 1991 or so. The reason being is because 
in the game there's this uh religion um and i forget what it's actually called but it there's the direct analog to this religion is the christianity and it has this sort of destructive force um it's kind of in a way seen as sort of this like deviant almost like evil force in the game so there's a, there was this kind of thought that wow you know this game is might be a little too strong for westerners that uh, you know we might have to tone this down and i think they did end up actually censoring or not censoring but changing some parts so it wasn't as strong okay yeah it's always a touchy subject right uh, regardless and sure. there's always people looking at various things in popular right. culture and uh... but 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 the thing is that back back in the day you know like i thought you know wow here's this video game that's going to touch on some things that are very western that um you know that you know maybe can create some kind of dialogue you know like here's something here's a game that's attempting to be a little bit more than just a game mm-hmm. you know it's trying to bring up these topical issues you know and when you know Basically, what I did was I, I sought out the Japanese version because by that time I was kind of into uh, import gaming because I wanted to study Japanese. Mm-hmm. And I found actually that, um, you know, some of the subject matter was handled pretty well, um, but a lot of it was very, as I mentioned, very shoehorned into mm-hmm. the story. And it's just the case that I think in I think it's also the case in Angel's Egg. And here's my final answer to whether I think it's sincere or shoehorned uh, mm-hmm. to have the, this, this uh, Christian imagery within the film is that I think that Olshi, you know, regardless of how much knowledge or belief he had in Christianity uh, at the time, I really think that... Um, he did what's generally called overgeneralization in mm-hmm. we call this in um, I believe we also use this term in education. This is when you've learned something and your way of displaying your knowledge of that thing is to overstate it. So in other words, uh, an example is, um, this is probably not the best examples, but, but it's one that's off the top of my head is, is children. If you teach a child the word dog, you know, and you point to a dog and say, this is a dog, you know, they're going to repeat that. Say dog, you know, and Mm. they're going to associate that animal with dog. But a lot of times what uh, children will do is that they will point out other animals that look like dogs, you know, for example, cats, Mm. um, you know, wolves, deer even. And they will also call those dogs. The reason being is because the what they think of as dog is is just animal four legs fur you know like they they take this very general approach to what that word dog means right mm-hmm. so you know a cat to them it looks like the same thing you know for us it's different cuz we know that cats have different characteristics from dogs you know they have you know for example pointier ears they meow you know they have longer whiskers generally you know you know, we just know that's not always true, actually, but <laughs> but we know that they're different because of different, you know, physiological, biological, you know, characteristics. But, you know, children don't see that. Likewise, when we're adults, we also do things like this. For example, um, you know, when we learn a particular thing, you know, um, I can't think of any really great examples now, but when we learn a particular thing, we want to display our knowledge of it by sort of overstating what it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe 
that's what I'm doing now, you know, by reviewing this film, you know, by overstating, you know, what the film is all about, you know, that, you know, I'm trying to display, hey, I, I know something about Angel's Egg, you know, it's it's a way of showing, you know, rather than, you know, incorporating that into your regular knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. it's fronting information as opposed to just uh, being able to internalize it. So I kind of feel that this film, even though I think there's a lot of successful imagery, there's some things that are very striking. You know, there's there's the egg, you know, uh, the way that the girl carries the egg, you know, is, you know, in her dress, which actually kind of looks like she's pregnant when she's carrying it around. Yes. You know, And that kind of evokes, you know, possibly, you know, Mary, right? The Virgin Mary, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. You know, I thought that was somewhat of a clever image. But then you have things like the warrior who's carrying this weapon around that looks like a cross, you know, it's like, you know, that if you really want to slap someone in the face with imagery, that's Christian, you have to use a cross. Right. I mean, it just instantly evokes, you know, Christianity among at least Westerners. Right. So that I thought was completely unsuccessful. That's like, okay, come on, you know, I know what you're trying to get at here, okay? <laughs> you don't have to slap me in the face with it. So I kind of feel like this film as a whole has that sort of issue where some of the imagery is going to be really clever and, you know, or at least moderately clever, and some of it's going to be kind of like, well, she... Kind of like him saying, like, okay, I know a little bit about Christianity, you know, or I know maybe he knows a lot. I don't, I don't know. And you know what? I'm just going to slam all this stuff in that I know just so just to get my point across, you know. Mm-hmm. And to Japanese people, that might come off as being kind of subtle. Uh, but I can't speak as a Japanese person. So as a Westerner, I have to say that it's a lot of times it's very unsubtle. And, you know, as I mentioned, the cross is one point. The second point is when um, he and the girl have sort of holed up and he starts, um, as you said, he starts uh, quoting passages of the Genesis. You know, it's like, it's like, come on, man. It's like, you're kind of wasting my time. I kind of felt at this point, you know. And, 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 you know, again, the imagery. And you talking of it like that actually makes me not, not question my my own view of it, the movie, but I I wasn't bothered with with it being so done so clearly because I guess it appeals to me because I feel I'm getting mm-hmm. stupider each and every year but but actually uh, I'm, 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 I'm on board with you yet I wasn't bothered with it you know what I mean so right. uh, that's why I said earlier that I'm kind of mid in the middle of the road in terms of those choices in the film right well I think that's why you know I mentioned earlier that the film can be very divisive I mean you know you're going to have people who think that it, or believe that it can it's going to convey a very valid message mm-hmm. but you're gonna have those who are just thinking it's just slow boring art house crap that's trying to evoke you know this uh, a christian mythology possibly or a truth you know depending on how you feel about christianity mm-hmm. and you know they're going to get a lot uh, they're not going to get anything out of it or they're just going to think oh my god oh she's just like this you know this artsy animation director you know it's mm-hmm. you know and maybe not pursue his other works you know yeah yeah so yeah, i haven't seen a- any movie that i could you know of his that i can draw a straight line to from angel's egg right so uh, it's um uh, it's interesting in that regard i mean I, it, all the question marks that i spoke of that i made in my uh, notes and uh, and uh, are present all, all 
in this review and kind of will be now it, it's it's all like i'm all up until the end i'm, I'm not sure what happened but I, but I keep asking myself and i'm i'm not bothered by the fact that i'm struggling still with uh, interpretation of the film it, some other movies i can be really bothered and even turn off but I, this mm-hmm. i'm on board with so i mean of course when you see the man he's carrying a cross so what is this a hope figure in the aftermath mm-hmm. uh, why is she carrying the egg especially after all the genesis passage that talks about noah on the ark sending out the bird to look at you know uh to, to see how how far reaching kind of the the water water was of so the destruction and that bird never coming back and and then right. then then saying i don't know if this is a passage from genesis but but the dialogue in the movie is like something along the lines of that the bird was forgotten and uh sort of mem- memories got lost and no one knew why why they were in a certain place at the time and then i don't know if that connects to the fact that there's a lot of uh imagery of the f- almost ghostly fishermen that are also seen mm-hmm. as being a, a stone stone statues you know just si- right. silent uh memories in limbo if you will and uh and you know that th- that's a question i keep asking myself and you know, b- jumping a little bit to what possibly happens at the end, I, I wanted mm-hmm. to see if you had to take or not. Uh, uh, the egg breaks at one point, and the girl runs away, and you know, disheartened, right. and and uh, and then she she falls into the water, meets her Im- uh, sh- her imagery there, and then we don't see her until she she is a stone statue on the big ship that the man came on uh came on originally or maybe it's the thing that descends from the sky it's not the big mm-hmm. cleaner ship it's the thing that descends from the sky and and you see feathers in the wind as well and and at that point i'm wondering to, to myself uh, that was this man if we want to simplify it ever you know uh a good person or was it just another wave of you know destruction that the, right, the, right you know what i mean because it, there uh, is a lot of gathered up stone f- things in stone including the girl which i never noticed on my uh, first viewing and uh mm-hmm. so, so, so i don't know there, there seemed to be hope but then there maybe if he wasn't evil then maybe he just descended because to the world right. because there was no hope at all just gathered up all the ones that were still still there right. and still alive so they didn't need to suffer alone because obviously she is totally alone in the world so and by saying all of that and and interpreting it that way, and it might not go make sense with my early interpretations, but I I take that away from the film. That it's kind of haunting. Everything was lost from the beginning, and uh, and right. uh, and she was either relieved or taken, take you know, her freedom taken away, her innocence taken away. And uh, if the egg, or rather the multiple eggs that you see at the end of the film, if they are actually just a fantasy or a concrete right. thing in the world you know right. whatever is in the egg is that a savior those multiple eggs do they hold a savior i don't know but it seemed like all is lost at the, at the end of the film but uh, right uh, so that's my sort of whimsy but ultimate personal interpretation of the film but i a lot many wise but in a good way i guess i sum it up in, uh, easily you know right well, okay, I think that, I mean, I think we go, kind of have to go back to, you know, the film can be interpreted in any number of ways, and yeah. we don't know exactly how well she wanted uh, 
was trying to get at and that, you know, that you can take, I think, two directions with this film. I, I think the direction that you seem to be taking is that, you know, she, the girl is representative of some sort of uh, innocence, right? And yes. that the egg is sort of, she's protecting something within her that is, you know, still good and pure and that the man is like some kind of possibly some demon and he's come to basically, you know, take that away from her. And, you know, in the end... Or maybe to relieve her as well, you know, I'm I'm divided. uh, Right. It's such a desolate world to be unfortunately living in, you know, and she's actually, she's very scared of the world as well. The ghost fisherman, she's very scared of, you know, she's uh, Mm. clinging to him when that sequence happens. Right. So... Now, now you're taking, again, you're taking this thing that uh, I guess you could say that the man is, could be seen as an antichrist figure. Whereas you could actually interpret it the other way around. You could actually see him as being a Christ figure in mm-hmm. that the girl is not in, you know, in this so-called interpretation, the girl is not an angel who's protecting her innocence. The girl is actually a person. The egg is actually the word or the gospel. And that the egg represents her understanding the gospel, but keeping it within herself. You know, Christianity, part of it is to spread the word, Mm -hmm. right? It's to spread the gospel. It's what Tim Tebow does every Sunday. you (laughs) Um, You know, it's to spread that word. And, you know, you could see the man as being actually a Christ figure being Jesus. Mm -hmm. In other words, when he takes the egg, this gospel, this seed of, you know, understanding that she has, he takes the egg and, you know, basically destroys it is actually him enabling her to, to spread the gospel. You Mm -hmm. know, it's to take that seed and plant it in the world and let it spread, you know, there's a line he says to her um, and, you know you must break it to know what's inside right and he also says he also says to her if you if you don't keep this within you you'll lose it so yeah. that that's another thing that's another as being you know christian you have to you know in essence think christian thoughts you live christian it's not a religion it's a lifestyle you know that kind of thing you know if you put that into modern uh, terms mm-hmm. So, you know, in following up with this interpretation, you know, you have the men who are, you know, trying to hunt these fish and these fish are actually, um, they're not just common fish, they're actually coelacanth, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, one of the oldest uh, mammals in the world, or excuse me, one of the oldest animals in the world. Fish aren't mammals. So anyway, so, so, you know, you have this, you know, this sort of um, link to ancient history, you know, before man, that kind of thing, you know, and, you know, why are they chasing these shadows? You know, well, you know, are they shadows themselves? Are they empty forms? So, you know, maybe the parallel here is that, you know, these are men who like, you know, again, bringing out the Christian imagery, men who are chasing empty gods, Mm -hmm. you know, because the thing about Christianity is that you do not worship other gods you worship Christ the Lord, yeah. right? So, and other gods are just hollow in comparison to God himself or herself, if, you know, if we want to take a modern interpretation of God, right? So, you know, this interpretation could also be um, I used, I think. And, you know, it even follows that, you know, you were talking about 
when she when the egg is broken you know she runs away she jumps into the water and then we see other eggs pop up this is actually, you know, the sowing of the seed, you know. So now that we have the gospel, it's now that it is, it, now that your Christian self has been realized that you can also spread seeds among other people. So in other words, like if I, we're just going to use an example, if I, you know, uh, believed in Christ, you know, let's say, I'm not going to say whether I do or not. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have myself realized as a Christian, I can now spread the word to you and Stu and Josh and Rufus and all these people because, and that me spreading it is me giving you the seed to realize it within yourself. Mm-hmm. So that you could interpret the film that way too. Yeah, you know, it, you could definitely that, interpret it as being, you know, the the uh, proselytization. I always forget how to pronounce this word. Pros- proselytization of Christianity in the world. And, um, or again, you could just see it as being slow, boring art house crap that has yeah. no meaning, too, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of ways you can look at the film. And then which you've is... given it a chance. If you come to that conclusion, hopefully at the end of the film, then you've given it a chance, uh, if talking general viewers. So that that's, you know those sticking with it past the 20 minute uh, mark again there's only one line of dialogue in the first 20 minutes right. and it's and it's that key line who are you which right. i thought which i you know, on a minor tangent on that i thought who are you was interesting in my go connected to my interpretation that both her and maybe him at that point mm-hmm. early in the film are no longer remember who they are and where they are and wh- what they came from there right. on their way of you know being stone essentially right. so in um, the alternate interpretation of course is that again you might have this person who has this belief in christ but who are you are you a real christian you know yeah. if you're a real you know and i'm using real in quotes here because that sounds really kind of almost like a uh, um uh, it almost sounds derogative in a sense you know mm-hmm. but um you know if you're a real christian then you spread the word right Yes. Why are you Why are you keeping the gospel within you? It's something you have to share, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's something you could also, uh, you know, throw into, you know, this alternate interpretation. Not necessarily that I believe it, but that it's at least intriguing. And also I wanted to add in to that, you know, when I say that, you know, some people might regard as being slow, boring art house crap, you know, of course you're entitled to your opinion about, you know, whatever it is. But I think that's part of, at least with this particular uh, work of Ulshi's, what makes um, it something that is intriguing because, you know, normally I think with animation, again, people have this, uh, people think of it as just being like a bunch of cartoons and it's just something to laugh at, something to have fun with and to Mm -hmm. be entertained by, you know, but, you know, you know, she's definitely adding something into the mix here, you know, saying that, Maybe he's not saying it directly, but at least through the work, he's saying that, you know, well, animation can be something that explores topics beyond just, you know, schoolgirl panties and yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> and, and you know, people may not know of this and only know of Ghost in the Shell because that, that certainly, you right. know, anyway, attempts uh, to evoke... Uh, force of existence and all of that and, and not that this is has that train of thought but 10 years earlier oh she made 
uh, made you know n- not something similar but uh, challenged uh, whatever notions were out there in anime at that time and Ghost in the Shell might not be very new for 1995 anime but uh, in his filmography it was not the first time he attempted uh, to make the audience think right and uh, I, I mean we, we it's hard to do a proper summary I think you've gotten a, an idea listeners of uh, what we thought of the films I don't have any other summary other than I wanted to mention that my, my favorite imagery in the film is that sequence in the courtyard in the um, in the old town where where she sees the well you know i said ghost fishermen and I, I'm, I'm not sure what they are but they they seem like it when, when they are chasing you know the fish trying to spear it with the sort mm-hmm. of uh, harpoons that they throw right. yeah and when they throw them at the buildings essentially and you only see you know the shadow of the big fish i think regardless of what that meant to me i thought that was such such a cool scene a cool idea to do an animation and really well done i mean of course you can see this is a little bit older this movie but it it the the time it's from you know it's kind of timeless it's made in 1985 but it stands up you know quality wise it uh, it's still uh, up there you know it's um, Mm -hmm. it it hasn't grown old and stale uh, the animation choices and I, i guess that's true throughout for me i don't think there's any weak scene that makes you think oh my god they were so lame in 1985 in anime yeah i think that's kind of a a testament to um to amano's work though you know i mean it's definitely you know she of course was a was a director but you know amano i think his style really carries well in this particular uh film I would love to get the soundtrack for this movie as well because it's a very uh, jarring uh, ambient yeah. uh, score, uh, which is very well performed. And uh, uh, you know, um, we we talked about it on this show many times, you and I, John, uh, on scores in Japanese movies and uh, right. jarring ambient scores in like Pale Flower and what have you. This is not jarring as such, but it's definitely you know it's right. a it's a soundscape uh, right. a lot of the time. This movie and uh, and it jumps at you. It's jarring, but not in a jump scare kind of way though. right uh, yeah and we mentioned that Kano is a uh, classical composer but if anything you know it's not going to be like a genteel classical classical music uh it's yeah. the soundtrack is very much modern classical um you know in that you know there's very affecting dramatic uh, string pieces but just as well there's a lot of um natural sounds voices yeah. you know a lot of collaging uh, going on which is uh really cool i think it really gives the film uh atmosphere and you know i was actually um you know this is the second time i'd i've seen the film too and the first time i, I can't even remember you know what i thought about the film but mm-hmm. I, I really loved the soundtrack back then and you know having watched it the second time you know i can say that i really love it now and i i don't have the uh, the actual uh, OST, but I, I, you know, I kind of uh, hope that it's somewhere out there and available somehow, yeah. <laughs> because you know I would like a copy of it too. And and that unless you have some some summarizing thoughts, John, I I actually don't have any. Otherwise, other than uh, I I hope you listeners somehow would like to watch this and form your own opinion. If you and if you do not, then then I certainly am not uh, going to complain <laughs> yeah yeah I, I don't have any particular notes but uh you know with what you just said um 
I think it's kind of interesting you said uh, for people to form their own opinions about it. And I think, again, if we uh, go back to sort of, I guess, the theme of this episode, that Oshi is this polarizing force, I think that you're going to end up having some kind of opinion uh, when you watch this film, whether you want to or not. And it's not going to be something... It might not be something that guides you to watch his other work, so to speak, but yeah. I think that, um, you know, at the very least, uh, you know, um, ha- having opinion about him, you know, at least based on this film is part of, again, what goes into him being this uh, this uh, sort of uh, divisive figure in the community of yeah. uh, uh, anime and film in general, I guess you could say, too. And and, and certainly my only cl- closer thought is that it's a movie I would return to because it's an easy watch at 71 minutes uh although slow but i i absolutely uh, adore it for many reasons and then i go even if i don't feel like interpreting it during a particular viewing uh, maybe i'd just like to you know look you know w- watch it before bed one night and just soak in some more of the visuals because there's details to be taken in right uh, especially since at least my bootleg version is based on such a great print uh, of the right. movie anyway so um so yeah i i i uh, it's a definite rewatch for me in the right. future multiple times i would say though if you watch it right before you go to sleep though be careful you don't have nightmares about the penis tank <laughs> now i didn't notice that so now you evoke that in me and now i'm now now now, now i need to watch it again obviously <laughs> Anyway, this is the first episode of Japan of Fire 6 done on Mamoru Oshii, as I've learned. And the uh, second episode is not planned in terms of the movies we're going to discuss. Uh, and uh, even, you know, I'd, I'd love to have you on uh, again, John, because I think it would be cool sure. if uh, we kept that through line and introduced you to more works. But maybe we'll bring in some some other guest or guest or the other co-hosts as well to participate in the second episode but uh, okay. this is the first one in the bag and you've been listening to japan on fire on the podcast on fire network located at podcastonfire.com our email is podcastonfire at googlemail.com our message forum podcastonfire.com slash forum where you can find the members only archive but also that archive is more or less going to be the bonus episode archive on the main site in the future unless we cut out a few minutes of fun from from an episode and present it in smaller sound files like we have in the past with members only but the the, the bigger bigger the bigger extra content is going to be a bonus episode at least for now we are on facebook facebook.com forward slash pof network and if you search podcast on fire network you'll also find our facebook discussion group so uh we'll gladly add you there and uh, have some chat about uh, whatever you like and uh also on Twitter, of course, twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. And my writing, Kenneth, that is, is at sogoodreviews.com, video, video review, that's lisakvideo.com. And I'm also on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. Subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us on iTunes, and listen to us on the go on Stitcher. Stitcher.com can download that to your computer as well as to your smartphone. Search podcast on fire network and add each individual show on the network whatever you like it's up to you choice is free and uh, vcinema is located where john again vcinema is located vcinemashow.com that's s-h-o-w uh we're also on facebook facebook.com slash vcinema twitter our handle is vcinema show s-h-o-w again and again we're on google plus and i don't know what the url is so just look us up and um 
our podcast is available on iTunes as well as Stitcher and other places. So uh, hopefully some of your listeners can uh, join us in a little uh, conversation over at V Cinema too. Yeah. And again, congratulations on the two-year anniversary and hope to Thank see you. you for a third anniversary and uh, see, therefore, have a great look back on, on, on the third year and see see what happened see what happened during that time it was good timing it was <laughs> yeah. good timing by the way you had uh, your second anniversary at the beginning uh, beginning of the year uh, yeah. so you you almost uh, you, you were almost born you know at the, at the beginning of the year so to say so yeah, the, yeah. Uh, just as a mi- minor question do, do you dread listening back to your very very first episodes by any chance or you're pretty satisfied with the outputs um yeah, I don't really dread it. Not not as much as I, maybe you might think. Um, you know, I before I started doing podcasting, I was in radio, so I'm used to listening to myself say embarrassing stuff, you know, <laughs> or you know, acting idiotic. So it's not that big of a deal. I, I think it's kind of embarrassing was my approach to editing the podcast, and you know, it's I, I don't think I had the correct approach. Um, at that time but you know now i think uh, it's a lot better the editing is has a lot more of a flowing feel to it than it did before at the beginning it's development and uh, i consider myself developing still in terms of editing and sure. creating the podcast uh, still you know 100 plus episodes in so i right. can relate to that but uh, anyway this was the panel fire six so thank you again john for coming on and i oh, I, really, thank you. I really enjoy having these chats with you and uh, you 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 bring so much to the table so i'm looking forward to having you on again and uh, hopefully for japan on fire 6-2 and uh, therefore i've been your host ken and with me was coffin john all right and goodbye everyone